part of my attraction to the horror genre is just seeing the collision between beauty and violence. And I think that aesthetically and dramatically, that's a really interesting combination of colors. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Eli Ross' History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. Don Mancini created one of the most popular creatures in horror, the evil doll Chucky, first seen in the movie Child's Play. Over the past three decades, Don has written eight movies about Chucky, directed three of them, and also found time to serve as a writer-producer on the cult hit shows Hannibal and Channel Zero. In this conversation with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga, he does a deep dive into two of his favorite films, Brian De Palma's Carrie and Dressed to Kill. Along the way, he discusses movies about evil children and two other towering icons of cinema, King Kong and Nicolas Cage. By the time he's finished, you'll watch everything he's talked about with new eyes. Is your creation Chucky a kind of wish-fulfillment figure for children who lack power? Yeah, that's exactly right. Chucky is a subversive wish-fulfillment figure for children who feel that they don't have agency in their lives. When I was a kid, a couple of the first horror movies that I really imprinted on both came out in the same year, 76, The Omen and Carrie, and became very interested in De Palma, loved The Fury as well. What all these movies I realized later had in common was they were about kids supernaturally punishing their enemies. And I think that that is something that is extremely attractive to young people who feel that they have no control over their lives. So yeah, I think that Chucky does embody a little bit of that impulse. Do you think your feelings about children taking supernatural revenge change as you get older? And does it become something you worry about? No, no, not really. I mean, you know, Chucky... Over the years and through the various iterations, he's come to symbolize different things, depending on the film, depending on the era. Chucky was also, first out of the gate, a satiric 
embodiment of a kind of consumerism run amok that I think was uh, happening a lot in the 80s. And I was really inspired by the Cabbage Patch doll craze when I wrote that. Then a few years later, with Bride of Chucky, we kind of reinvented it, and he became a little bit of a, an avatar for LBGTQ rights. And, and with Seed of Chucky, that kind of cemented that. Then with Curse of Chucky and the introduction of the Fiona Dorif character, who is a disabled young woman, we were able to bring bring that in a little more. But I think what, what remains consistent, and he's, he's always a bit of an agent of chaos, symbol of chaos. And children like chaos. Well, I mean, I think children are chaotic. I mean, I think children, you know, when we're kids, we start to, initially, we're in the womb and we're peaceful and comfortable and then we're born and it's... Ah, you know, and I think I think that we're always trying to find a way to calm the chaos down. And I think that one of the ways that Chucky operates is that he's often going after authority figures and bucking the status quo. And I think that because he is diminutive in stature, seeing such a character do that and prevail is very satisfying, not only to children, but we all feel this way periodically, or I hope I'm not the only one <laughs> that feels that way periodically throughout my entire life, and still get a satisfaction at seeing something that is so innocent looking, but also so, something that people would normally just overlook and not be threatened by. I think that's part of the appeal, too. It's just like, you would never suspect this innocent, cute little thing that you wouldn't worry twice about coming after you with a knife. Appeals to our homicidal inner child. Yeah. What fascinates you about Brian De Palma's work, particularly his golden period in the 70s and 80s? In addition to the themes that we were just discussing... The stylization of his films really attracted me, and I'm of a generation of horror filmmakers whom a lot of people my age were really informed by movies like The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, stuff like that. But while I you know, have come to really respect those movies, obviously, and think that they're great and obviously seminal films in the genre, they didn't affect me in the same way because they were just dirty and dusty. And I think part of my attraction to the horror genre, and, and this is something that De Palma does, is just seeing the collision between beauty and violence. And I think that aesthetically and dramatically, that's a really interesting combination of colors. I don't know if it was De Palma or Argento. One of those guys, I think, said that like the quintessence of the horror genre for them was the image of beautiful woman's face with a slash of blood across it. It's just so symbolic and loaded. And again, just the desecration of that kind of beauty. There's something very interesting about that to me. But I think also being a sort of middle-class kid, I loved luxuriating in, you know, the palatial homes of, like, the Gregory Peck family. You know, he's the ambassador to Great Britain. You know, their digs are beautiful. And the movie The Fury, you know, these 
characters are very wealthy and globe-trotting, and there there was something about that that appealed to me as well, I suppose. But really, it's that aesthetic and dramatic combination of beauty and horror that really speaks to me for some reason. Was Carrie articulating a kind of post-Watergate anger in the 1970s? I think for me, the themes are so universal and so transcend that time. And I also think De Palma's approach, because it's so stylized, I was about to say there's a timeless quality of the movie, and then I'm remembering all of the costumes. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's just like indelibly marked as, you know, the mid-70s, and that's true. But De Palma's, for lack of a better word, and I always find this to be such a loaded word because it's used against me sometimes for my work, camp. But setting aside whatever negative ramifications might be attached to that, I think, you know, De Palma had a slightly camp approach to the material in that movie. And I think that that's something that, for me, makes it ultimately timeless. And I think it's one of the reasons why that movie is still so powerful 40 years later, even though it's so indelibly rooted in the 70s by its aesthetics, a lot of its, you know, design, the approach to it is theatrical. And I think that that's super interesting. De Palma and King both have great senses of humor that they channel into their horror, but King's coming from a really different place. So much more naturalistic than De Palma. Because, like, even, you know, the humor that De Palma brings in, you know, it's sometimes meta, or he'll play with film techniques that, you know, scene that seems so especially goofy when the guys are trying on the tuxedos and he speeds up the sound. And, you know, there's this experimental avant-garde. I hesitate to use that term because it sounds too pretentious. But you know what I mean? There's just like, he was just like doing lots of things in that movie and other movies of his as well during that time that just wouldn't fly today, I don't think. And I think like when I show Carrie to younger people today who maybe have never seen her, or if I see it with younger audiences, I can sense that there's a lot of that that they don't know how to take. But I think culturally at that time, we were all kind of well-trained in this kind of pop culture flavor. There's a kind of like goofiness. That's not quite the right word, but silliness. There's the slightly like light attitude at times that pervaded a lot of pop culture in the 70s. If you think of like the King Kong remake of 1976, the Roger Moore Bond films. Yeah, there was just this thing happening in our culture where that was not only accepted, it was celebrated, that kind of tone. And I think that that's something that people frown upon more now. Like certainly with horror, we're getting into this realm where people seem to value, or I know the town and critics seem to value now what they call elevated horror. And I like a lot of those movies, don't get me wrong, but sometimes I miss a movie that has a sense of humor. Especially the older I get, the more 
ambivalent I get about my relationship to the work that I'm doing, if that makes any sense. Because it's like when you're in your 20s and you're cooking up elaborate ways of killing people and horrible, shocking face for your characters, there's just something amusing about that. And you don't really think about the ramifications in the way that you do when you're older and in your 50s. Thinking about death is different to me <laughs> now than it was when I started. You know, it's like I can't shrug it off as much as I can. But that said, I feel like the sense of humor that comes out in De Palma's films to me suggests a sense of proportion or sanity about the material that he's doing. I don't know. Some movies are so punishing now that their method is to really rub your face in a lot of anguish and ugliness and misery. And I just have a harder time with that as a middle-aged man than I, I did when I was younger. Well, De Palma, when he watches films, it, at least particularly in that period, you have the feeling it's somebody who is actually enjoying what he's doing. Yes. <laughs> well, he, and he's putting on a show. And he certainly went on to, to prove in his career that he was very restless in terms of the kind of movies that he did. And he, you know, he's as known for making gangster movies now as he is for horror movies. Which ironically turns out to be probably his saving grace in some people's eyes, right? So, oh, I, I would say so, yeah. Because I, I, I think that, you know, movies like Scarface and The Untouchables, they had, you know, such a huge impact on film and on the culture yeah, generally. Yeah, you didn't get the same amount of crap from people for making this. For being a Hitchcock <laughs> ripoff, yeah. Yeah, that whole other topic. How is Carrie a good vehicle for De Palma's interests as a filmmaker? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is a little superficial maybe, but I think that the the subject matter being about telekinesis, I think that is is so completely cinematic. Although I love the novel Carrie as well as loving the movie, but they're very different beasts. And I think, you know, Stephen King himself in interviews that I've read, he's a little self-deprecating about that book. And I think he said that he felt that De Palma improved on it. I don't necessarily even agree with that because I thought that the book with the epistolary structure and the more naturalistic approach of its characters, I thought was legitimately interesting in and of itself. But I think that De Palma as a filmmaker was interested in the mechanics of how to depict this specific horrific supernatural phenomenon of telekinesis because it requires that one lean on those kind of Hitchcockian rules of cinema. Or even going back earlier than that, is, what, what is, is it Kuleshov, the Kuleshov effect? It's, it, you know, it's, it's about cutting. It's, and so that, so Carrie is built around a system of shots where you have close up on Carrie looking at something, cut to the thing that she causes to happen, causes to move, and then back to her. And I think De Palma was really interested in that. And he knew that that was a uniquely cinematic phenomenon and that that story would lend itself to making a potentially really great movie. And I think that it was interesting to see how he segued from that movie into The Fury and he brought some of those same 
Hitchcockian filmmaking rules, but then extended it because that movie also dealt with telepathy. So you're dealing with the interior of the mind, people having visions. And I thought that the way, again, the way he depicted telepathy in The Fury was completely cinematic. The scene with Amy Irving on the staircase when she has a vision and, you know, famously De Palma has Amy Irving in front of a green screen and she's revolving in one way and the the action is being projected behind her. You know, brilliantly simple idea. And then in another scene in the movie, she has a, a vision that is kicked off by simply flicking a light switch. I don't know how well you know the movie, but there's a scene where she walks into Andrew Stevens' old room in the house that she's staying in. She's wandering around, flips on the switch, and suddenly, bling, we're in a flashback. And as a point of, uh, of comparison, I think it, it's interesting to see how De Palma handles that stuff as opposed to how Cronenberg handled similar material in Scanners. Don't get me wrong, I love so many of Cronenberg's movies, but I find De Palma's handling of that device more cinematic because he is utilizing the tools that he learned from Hitchcock. So interesting in The Fury, he has these different set pieces, and in each set piece he depicts telepathy using different methods. So there's the one we talked about with the rear screen projection, uh, the one we talked about where he flicks on the light switch and suddenly it's it's like an episode of Bewitched and suddenly, blink, all the people are there in the room with her. But then there's a scene where Amy Irving is having a vision where she is seeing simultaneously what the Andrew Stevens character is seeing hundreds of miles away or whatever. And he conveys this by using the rigid rules of point of view that Hitchcock so popularized in his suspense films, where you have a shot of a person and, and, and Amy Irving will look, will look like this, and then we cut to a point of view shot, tilt, camera tilting down. We know from decades of watching movies, particularly Hitchcock movies, that that means that's her point of view, but it's jarring because the lighting is different, the environment is different, so we're getting the idea that she's seeing through the eyes of another character, but he does it in this specifically cinematic way. Again, very, very simple, but so powerful. And how do all these cinematic effects increase our empathy for Carrie? Because if you stand back, the plot is bullied youngster massacres senior class. So you wouldn't think you'd be on her side. But by the time she snaps, just about everybody in the audience and in the film is on her side. But she doesn't see it that way, right? <laughs> in that scene, one of the things that happens is she literally sees red. You know, just like suddenly everything goes red. Again, extremely simple idea, but very effective. We're starting to feel this character's rage. And using all of these Hitchcockian tools, the point of view shots, where he's literally constantly putting us inside her head and seeing the world through her eyes. And, and because he loves stylization, it allows him to get us plugged into her various moods. You were just like saying how by the time she snaps, actually everyone, most people are on her side, but what does she see? She sees that weird kaleidoscope effect, 
They're all going to laugh at you. She imagines she's seeing everyone laughing at her, but they're not. But again, because it's presented specifically, strictly through her point of view via the filmmaking methods of shot, counter shot, subject, point of view, back to subject. It's just so powerful. He's always putting us inside that character's head so that we can feel what she's feeling, seeing what she's seeing, even though we know as in the audience that she's mistaken. And I think that also underlines the kind of tragic quality of that movie. And I think that's one of the things that's so powerful about the movie too. And it, it still works 40 years later. Almost, I think everyone always responds to that movie where like, we just want it to turn out differently this time. Because it's like, she goes to the prom and she's happy. You know, she's just happy for the first time. And we're so happy to see that and dreading what we know is coming. And then it all explodes. He also uses the, it still manages to be subjective, even though it's filled with split screens, which would seem to be a break from subjectivity. Well, I, you know, and I love the split screen footage in that sequence. But again, it's interesting because De Palma has come around to thinking that was a mistake. And I think he's mistaken about that because his original reason for doing it, of course, it makes total sense that he didn't, because there was so much telekinesis happening in that sequence, he felt it would get repetitive to keep having to do what we were just talking about. So to create visual variety for that, split the screen so that she's on one side and what she's doing happens on the other side. I thought that was great. I know that some people feel it's distancing. And again, I think that De Palma has come to feel that that was maybe potentially distancing and the wrong move to make. I just think it's thrilling, you know, and it, he's constantly providing us with this kind of visual variety and throwing different cinematic devices at the screen to convey these different moods. Carrie is a cult following among gay men. Why do you think that is? What's the attraction? Well, I think it's a number of things. I mean, one theory I have about De Palma and my own interest and attraction to De Palma and I think other, not filmmakers, but I have like a lot of gay friends who are into film and who, and who love De Palma. I, it sounds simplistic, but since I'm gay, I get to say it. I think, you know, a lot of gay audiences are often attracted to the operatic, to the stylized, to just beauty. I think that's a big part of it. But specifically with Carrie, you know, she's a bullied character. And most gay people can identify with her plight. So I think that's a big part of it, too. Those, Her character and the stylization, I think, account for its gay cred. Would Carrie have worked without actresses as strong as Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie? I think that they're both, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie are completely crucial to the success of the movie. And part of it is because they have such completely different acting styles. And you might think on paper, they wouldn't necessarily mesh. Sissy Spacek's performance is so naturalistic and so raw, and you just can't help but love this character who is in such agony because we've all been bullied at some times in our lives and we all can identify with that. And I think that her naturalism and delicacy even allowed her to transcend the fact that she was quite manifestly 10 years older 
as they all were, you know, 10, I mean, it was, that was another thing that was going on in the culture. That was just the way it was done. Teenagers were played by 30 year olds then, but because her performance is so raw and naturalistic, it really gets to you. But when you put that up against the very theatrical stylized performance that Piper Laurie is giving, it's just another example of like two colors or, or, a different analogy would be Reese's peanut butter cups. You know, two different tastes that actually are even better together. Those, the two of them together were just so fucking dynamic. Am I allowed to fuck? say fuck? Sorry. <laughs> so terribly dynamic. <laughs> How did Pino Dinaggio's score differ from typical horror movie music at the time? Well, let's see. What was going on in horror movie music then? Uh, you know, Tubular Bells, obviously, from The Exorcist in 73, I think represented a kind of new thing in horror. There's something lyrical and repetitive about it that obviously influenced John Carpenter a few years later when he did his Halloween score. I assume he felt influenced by that. But Kino, you know, was, I, I think, of a much more old Hollywood tradition that was lush and romantic and, again, with De Palma, very, very Hitchcockian. I think that, you know, Pino's first score was for Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue movie. And it was on that basis that he hired him to do his first American film, which was Carrie. It's very romantic, you know, in the orchestration with the guitar and the violins. It's very, to me, the music is an expression of Carrie's, you know, yearning heart, you know, that she is this wallflower, but we know that inside is this beautiful soul that if only someone can see her, you know, and I, I think that's how that works in speaking to the viewer and bring, helping to bring us inside that character. And I think that that was kind of unusual for those kinds of movies at the time. You know, that same year, we also had, you know, Jerry Goldsmith's amazing score for The Omen, which is a completely different tradition, equally awesome, but very aggressive. And I think the Pino Donaggio score for Carrie is just, yeah, romantic, and it's it's all about her heart. But then, you know, when, you know, when she makes, it's interesting that he invokes specifically the, the psycho screeching violins for the moments when Carrie uses her power. Um, when I got to work with Pino Donaggio on Seed of Chucky, I had one moment in the film when I wanted to do it, and he absolutely <laughs> refused. He said, I won't even do that for De Palma anymore. Like, another great cue in that score was at the prom when, you know, that great camera movement, that single camera movement moving across the gym where we see the geography, and then it cranes up and follows the rope all the way to the bucket. And yeah, yeah, it's very Bernard Herrmann there. But I think it's it's a very romantic tradition that it's just in line with what we were talking about before. I, all this beauty that gets 
subverted and desecrated by shocking violence. De Palma's style is beautiful, but it's also very self-aware, very meta. Like he's making a film and commenting on the history of film and the act of making a film in a way that wasn't always understood or appreciated at the time, at least in America. These days, filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino are celebrated for doing that. Yeah, De Palma was maybe a bit ahead of his time in that way because... You know, he did that meta thing, as you say, where he's constantly reminding you that you're watching a movie. And that is actually one of the crucial differences to point out, I think, between De Palma and Hitchcock, because Hitchcock would never do that stuff. De Palma, before he got into horror movies, of course, he was indie filmmaker in New York, and he did a lot of avant-garde stuff. And he was very, very experimental. I think that his primary interest in horror was not the subject matter per se. I just think it was interesting to him insofar as it allowed him to use all of these different tools in his experimental toolbox. But as you say, that notion of pastiche, of taking elements from film history and appropriating them and repurposing them. And I do think he repurposed a lot of these things and made them new. So, so much of what his filmmaking is about is a conversation between himself and the filmmaker that he's homaging or ripping off, depending on your perspective on that. But I... Certainly, as someone who had a budding interest in film, all that stuff was catnip to me. I loved seeing that. But again, also arguably distancing for people. Um, But I I didn't mind that. Is that such a terrible thing? And in some ways, it reminds me of Nicolas Cage's argument about his acting style. Is so like you know, you know, naturalism is not the only style. Right, right. I always think about Nicolas Cage that his best movies were the ones like Vampire's Kiss and Face Off, maybe Snake Eyes. I don't know. That gave him the right proscenium arch to do his crazy meta i don't know it's it's a meta thing but it it's you know it, it's not a subtle form of acting my friends from UCLA film school wrote face off and i was actually on the set on the day that they were shooting and i got to see them shoot this this shot that has become like one of the iconic shots of that movie is when nicolas cage as sean archer as caster troy is in the prison, and his whole thing is that he has to make it convincing. And so he does this thing where he's like, woo, like that. I remember just completely out of context, like coming onto the set with my friends, and I look at that, and I think that that's like, really? Is that going to work? <laughs> like, of course, I'm like a complete idiot because it's like the most brilliant. It's, it's so utterly brilliant. Moving on to We Need to Talk About Kevin, a recent non-supernatural evil child movie. That movie actually, in a lot of ways, reminds me of The Omen. In the the obvious way is that they're about terrifying young boys. (laughs) But one of the most interesting aspects of The Omen was Lee Remick, the mom, her relationship with Damien and her alienation from her own child. And she grows to become quite frightened of her child, appalled. 
appalled by him and is, you know, convinced that he's a monster. And I think that's one of the really powerful subtexts of that movie. And I think that was, you know, part in The Exorcist as well. And I think that that was something that was going on in the culture that I think some of these, those two movies and others as well, that exploited the concept of the scary child because there was so much youth rebellion happening in the 70s then. And I think that the establishment was getting quite terrified of that. And Carrie and The Omen, Damien, they became avatars or archetypes for that fear. And we need to talk about Kevin kind of takes that further and makes the movie its sole focus really is this mother's alienation from her own child. And there's something so primally horrific about that. It feels very wrong. And I think culturally, it's something that we are all socialized into thinking is one of the most repugnant things imaginable. And I think that that that's one of the reasons it's so powerful. Even when he's just a baby and he's just screaming constantly, and I think doesn't at one point he smears his own shit all over the place. It's and it's almost like he's out to get her. And and so it starts to make her question her abilities as a mother and then as a as a woman and as a human being. And I think that's where so much of the horror lies in that movie is the notion of a mother who finds her child monstrous. I'm not a parent myself, but I can imagine that most parents have their moments like that, you know, in rearing kids from infancy through, you know, the teenage years and all of that. You can't control them. They are their own entities. And I think that there is something quite terrifying about that. And I I think that's what the power of we need to talk about Kevin is. Well, it's also the fear that you're a fraud and you won't be able to pull off this whole parenthood thing that seems to come so easily to everybody else. And Tilda Swinton is so ideally cast for that because she's, there's just an other aspect to her right out of the gate. And she's so harried, you know, she's just so distraught and she plays distraught so well. It's, you know, part of her homepage, I think, as an actor. And... To me, so much of the horror of that movie are just close-ups of her agonized face just trying to deal with this phenomenon that no one around her can see through her plight and identify with her. In fact, everyone judges her for it because I think culturally that's what we do to women who don't always live up to the ideal of like, oh my God, I love my beautiful child. My child is just the most wonderful thing. In some ways, it's sort of the mother and it's alive is more of the ideal of motherhood than Tilda Swinton is, and we need to talk about Kevin. I'm trying so, to remember, and it's alive. The mother protects the right, child, the right. monster baby, right. murderous monster baby. Right. Is the horror genre a uh, fertile ground for exploring guilt? <laughs> I mean, my knee-jerk is yes, but to form a cogent discussion about it, I would have to think about that more. Can you help me out? Um, well, I suppose in the case of this film in particular, it's more of the guilt that you oh, I can't... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it is about that. It's about this woman's guilt that she's not a better parent, that she has somehow created this monster 
And of course, the story as it progresses, I mean, it becomes what I imagine must be any parent's worst nightmare, that their child becomes a murderer. And it's been a while since I saw the film, but part of what I remember is is so powerful about it is that it's a relatively unstated, but heavily suggested that Kevin is doing all of this specifically to fuck with her. He's always playing the perfect child to his father and his sibling, his sister whose eye ends up shooting out. But yeah, I, I, I think Kevin is a literal manifestation of a woman's guilt over being a failed parent. Is he more frightening because his evil is unexplained? Yes, I would say that that's true. He is more frightening because his evil is unexplained. And I think Ezra Miller, something almost stylized about his face. You know, he's very high cheekbones. He's kind of inscrutable. Yeah, I think that that played into that. It gets across the kind of the dead-eyed psychopathy kind of, at least when he's with his mother. Yeah, like so many teenagers, he's just completely inscrutable. And we don't know why he does the things he does. But we suspect, and again, in that movie, we're constantly placed in Tilda Swinton's head. But the suggestion is that he's just out to get her. You mentioned The Omen before. What's your personal history with The Omen? My personal history with The Omen is that it was... Uh, Well, among other things, it was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. My dad took me to it. I was raised in an Italian Catholic family. So at that time, I was 13 years old. I was very steeped in all that dogma and took it relatively quite seriously. So on that level, it was very impactful to me, and I found it very scary. But at the same time, there was that other aspect that we talked about earlier where I think I identified with Damien and relished the idea of being able to turn the tables on all of the adults that were trying to thwart me. It started my love of that kind of horror movie, that kind of the the horror movie with the luxe surroundings and the the beauty that gets desecrated by violence. You know, this was just, you know, like a couple of months before I saw Carrie. That aspect of The Omen was made a huge impression on me. So I think the, the aesthetics and the Catholic dogma, I, I mean, I always wonder if it affected people who weren't raised Catholic or even Christian in the same way. The consensus of the Catholics I've interviewed is that The Exorcist seems tailor-made to trigger every fear the church has put in your head. The Exorcist came out in 73. I didn't see it on its first release. I was too young. So I didn't catch up with that movie until I think I was in college. And by then, I was lapsed and actively hated the church and all that. So I think I was past that impressionable age So it didn't affect me quite in the same way as The Omen, because I think that just The Omen got me at just the right time. And to this day, I think, I know this is heretical to say, I think I, I prefer The Omen as a film to The Exorcist, and it must be partly because of that. I mean, I do, I do love The Exorcist. Like, one of the things I don't understand about The Exorcist, why is the main character a movie star? making a movie in Georgetown. It seems so specific to me 
I think part of my confusion about that is probably just having been a screenwriter in Hollywood for 30-some years and feeling like that's the sort of thing that development executives would zero in on as not properly identifiable. And I mean, I think part of what they were going for is like, look at, you know, this family must seem on the surface to be like incredibly charmed or something. She's a movie star. She's making a movie. But I don't know. I just find that those details odd in a way. I know that, oh God, what is his name? Peter, William Peter Blatty was... But also, but he was friends with Shirley MacLaine. I think they were neighbors. And I think he supposedly based that character on her. Again, it's just such a specific thing that this is happening to a movie star in Washington, D.C. To this day, I don't know what that means subtextually. You know, I, I get that the bigger picture is that this is we get to see the spectacle of a kid going out of control and being an obscene horror. But she doesn't run around the Lincoln Memorial spewing vomit on people. Right. It just seems fetishistic to me in a way. And I and I suspect it was. I just I think that like, oh, let's make this character like Shirley MacLaine and I know Washington, DC, so that's where we'll do it. And maybe presumably they got a great tax break for shooting there. They barely <laughs> shot there, though. Yeah, they, they shot, like, a little in Georgetown, and most of it, I think, was in some frozen studio in, in Brooklyn or something like that. Oh, really? So, yeah. yeah. In the pantheon of evil children, does Damien bring something to the table that hadn't been there before? Or was... Well, what are, let's see, before Damien, what, you know, the pantheon of evil children who like who were Patty the... Patty McCormick and the Beds. Rhoda Penmark, right. Village of the Damned, Children of the Damned, the sequel to that. One thing is that Damien has no lines, and I think that's very interesting. I think, in a way, Damien is not really a character in that movie. He's more of a figure. I think that in a weird way that made it feel more real and more powerful because we could just project a lot onto him. He seemed like a real child. It just seemed like a real kid. Whereas Rhoda Penmark, you know, Patty McCormick, I mean, she's precocious, but in in a specifically kind of over-the-top theatrical way that I think, you know, it just feels very movie-ish in a way. So I think that maybe Damien in his silence allowed people to project all kinds of their own abstract fears about children onto him. When we think of King Kong, I think these days people probably usually think of the the original, 1933, right? And uh, and then uh, maybe Peter Jackson's version, and then there are the new ones where Kong's as big as a skyscraper or whatever. So is the 1976 version of Jessica Lange, is that worth a a reevaluation at this point? I think the Jessica Lange King Kong is completely worthy of reevaluation, and I kind of unabashedly love it. And I think it relates to, you know, some of the things we were talking about earlier that was going on in 70s movies. This 
sort of sniggering version of camp, along with, you know, in the pre-internet age, one of the purposes of some of these movies, like King Kong and the Bond movies, there was a kind of cheesecake factor where prepubescent or teenage boys could go and see beautiful women <laughs> in all kinds of sexy attire um, in a way that was kind of titillating, you know? And I think one of the things that turns people off about that movie that I find hilarious and endearing is that Kong is sexually turned on by Jessica Lange. And it's ridiculous, but to me, it's something that makes that movie distinct. Whereas in the original version, Fay Ray was only ever just terrified of Kong. It was, and I think the 76 Kong does not get enough credit for something that Peter Jackson clearly ran with, which was creating a relationship between the girl, you know, her name was Dwan in that movie, and Kong. And I think as a, as a child, again, this was, apparently 1976 was a big year for me. It was very, I was very impressionable then. So I'll, maybe that's the problem. Maybe these movies are all suck, but I was just at the right age to, t- to, like, to be taken in by them. But be that as it may, the relationship between Kong and the girl in that movie, Jessica Lange, in addition to the titillating part, it was also very sweet. I think Pauline Kael in her review of the movie, and she actually, I wouldn't necessarily call it a rave, but she was a big fan of that movie. And parenthetically, that was, to 13-year-old me, that was hugely validating. <laughs> I had just started, like, reading, like, going into the school library and had discovered The New Yorker and, and reading her and, and you know, read this, a wonderful writer and esteemed critic who agreed with me about this movie. I loved that. But she said that Jessica Lange humanizes Kong, and I think that she does. And I think that Jessica Lange's performance is awesome, and Jessica Lange herself does not give herself enough credit for what she did in that movie. She's very breezy and funny, but she makes you believe in all of the, the various special effects that went into creating King Kong. She makes you love him through her reactions to him, and she comes to really care about him and his fate in a way that didn't happen in the 33 version, where he was just a monster, but in... Another thing Pauline Kael said in her review is that he's like a pet. And I think that that's true for kids in the 70s. You saw that movie at that time. You sort of identified, you know, this furry animal as your pet. And he's just misunderstood. And you just have to, like, be nice to him. <laughs> he's misunderstood. Yeah, I I kind of love that movie. I love the John Barry score. I love the the location shooting in New York and Hawaii. I mean, I love Peter Jackson, of course, but by that point in cinema history, everything was just all about throwing CGI onto the screen. And all of the jungle sequences in that movie, they had a certain, you know, thundering power to them because of the his, his expert use of the CG effects. But there's something to be said about just, like, going to Kauai. And again, this is a time, an era when people didn't travel as much and the movies 
brought these you know natural wonders to us in the cinemas and i think that that's part of the appeal of of king kong of the 76 king kong as well that movie also influenced me honestly as a filmmaker because it was one of the first times i had seen how animatronics could be used to bring a character to life you know he wore the mask and of course the eyes were his with contact lenses and i think that was really key but you know everything else the facial movements all of that was done via animatronics and of course we all know the stories about the mechanical arms and the ridiculous 40 foot robot that was used in four shots in the movie. All of these things that people criticize the movie about, I feel are very endearing. And as a child, I loved watching the movie and seeing that's Rick Baker. That's the 40-foot robot. That's a little articulated doll. That's the arm. I, I, I found that fascinating and educational. I think I can we talk more about King Kong? Yeah. <laughs> I I warned you. I could like go on and on about King yeah. Kong. The the other thing about that King Kong that still strikes me and really struck me as a child was that I thought the end was genuinely tragic and disturbing in a way that neither of the other two are. You know, she's playing this starlet and whose main drive is that she wants to be famous. She even articulates it in that way a couple of times throughout the movie. She's going to get to be a star, and King Kong is going to be her ticket to that. And at the end of the movie, after he's fallen from the World Trade Center and he dies while she watches and she's crying, and it's by, by this point in the movie, we've already seen the relationship between them develop, and she cares about this creature and doesn't want him to die, and so it's terrible, and she cries. And she gets her wish. And at the end of the movie, she's surrounded by, you know, thousands of people clamoring for her and flashing cameras. And she's in this stunning silver gown. And you know that that character is never going to be happy again. And, and I really felt that as a child. And I thought that that was, that's a really complex, dark way to end you know, what was at the time, I think, like, if not the most expensive movie ever made, certainly one of them. And I think that's, like, one of the things that Dino De Laurentiis maybe doesn't get enough credit for is that he really, he hired people and he let them do their thing, come what may. David Lynch and Blue Velvet. Exactly. And I think, you know, Lorenzo Semple Jr. wrote that script and, you know, it it, it has his camp sensibility that he had, you know, been doing since this Batman days. But he brought also this weird, complex dimension to it that I think it's like like this, this quest for fame. You know, it's only going to bring you unhappiness. And I thought, I thought that was really fascinating. And I thought Jessica Lane was fantastic in that scene at the end when she's, you know, she's like going, Jack, and it's Jeff Bridges, you know, and he's, you know, he, he decides not to go to her because she has what she wants and she, and she's miserable and she's crying. I, I just love it. Now let's turn to Dress to Kill. 
This is arguably when De Palma hits his creative peak, but it's also when he became notorious for a variety of imagined sins, like stealing from Hitchcock. But everyone saw Hitchcock because they knew his films, whereas in the days before VHS, did anyone other than readers of film comments see the references to Giallo films or Dario Argento? You know, it's interesting. De Palma himself, I believe, claims never to have seen an Argento film before he made Dress to Kill, which I find interesting. And I, uh, you know, I... I don't necessarily think he's lying about that. Baba, I think he is just like maybe, maybe I don't. I I don't know if if he's addressed that or I, I'm not familiar. But I do know that you know people have asked him about Suspiria and he said he didn't see it. But he that aside, I mean, he's serial. There's something going on in the zeitgeist that he drew upon that. Uh, you know, you can see a direct line from those Italian horror giallo, uh, jali, uh, into Dress to Kill, the kind of, the elegance, the visual elegance, the, um, the kind of dreamlike quality, sometimes, you know, people moving, it's not, and it's not even always, strictly speaking, actual slow motion, although he does that a lot, but sometimes he actually directs his actors to move unnaturally slowly. Um, I, I know that I was very taken by all of that. And I, I think that that kind of like ripely sensual, elegant atmosphere combined with a specifically sexual context. You know, this is, you know, it's a movie about sex and it's about this woman's quest for sexual satisfaction that goes horribly wrong, which, you know, seems very regressive in a way. I often wonder if I had seen that movie when I was a bit older, if I would have had the same reaction. Because now, you know, as an adult and as a gay man, of course, you know, I look at that film and I and I say, "Wow, it's conf- the way it 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 conf- what's the word conf- conflagration of schizophrenia and multiple multiple personality disorder and transgenderism is very wrong." You know, it's and I I, I think people weren't as um, people weren't talking about that as much in the culture, but nevertheless, I can't. I have to assume that De, knowing De Palma's work, he's being deliberately provocative with it. I think he, you know, he's baiting people to come at, you know, and say like, okay, you know, you you think this is offensive? Look at this. So you know, so all of that is really interesting. But I just the movie is so trance-like, and I think that so many of his like the. The, the things I love about my favorite De Palma movies, they are often very trance-like. They're, you know, there there is this dreamlike feeling that they evoke that I think it gets under your skin and puts you into this receptive place where you can receive this scary stuff and it really hits you hard and i think that the the especially in dress to kill the way he combines that dreamlike elegant sensuality with this kind of ribald comedy you know that you know the the especially the Nancy Allen character and the Dennis Franz character and they're always they're always saying fuck and swearing and talking about sex 
in ways that at the time, certainly for a teenager, which I was at the time, it was like, whoa, this, you know, people are, people can talk like this. I like that, <laughs> you know, and then it's like, then he hits you in the gut, you go, ah, this is terrible. I think, you know, that, that movie, like so many horror movies, it's fundamentally conservative in a way, you know, it's telling you that if you pursue your sexual, uh, interests, you're going to get hurt <laughs> and it's a dangerous world out there. And I, and like, I don't know that one would be allowed to do that now, or at least not in the same way. But I think that because it, it, it came out at just the right time, I, I think it was just kind of an interesting cultural explosion. Well, there's also that aspect of De Palma where he responds to critics by doing something again, but even bigger, like, oh, you have a problem with the shower scene in Carrie? I'm going to start this one with a really long scene of Angie Dickinson in the shower. And show you more. Sure. And you're now we're really going to see the pubic area and everything. And of course, if you've seen the unrated version, which I assume you have, you, you know, you see a lot. It's, it's like, it's like you see more in Dress to Kill than you do in Basic Instinct honestly. Yeah, you know, he he likes to be provocative, and then he did it again with Body Double, you know. Um, Body Double absolutely seems to be a reaction to all the criticism he got for Dress to Kill. Yeah, and I, and I, in my opinion, I, like, I've never been a huge fan of that movie. I like it. I like aspects of it, but it, it's not one of my favorites, and I think one of the reasons is because I, I feel like it's too merely provocation, for me, and I and I think that it, the other aspects of the movie really suffer. But anyway, we weren't talking about body double, but because of his anger, <laughs> yeah, his passion becoming overcome by his bitterness. Maybe. Well, and it's also here's another movie like we're talking about, The Exorcist, another movie that takes place in the film industry, and I think that that was interesting to me, and it's probably interesting to film critics and cinephiles, but not as universally interesting as an upper middle class or, or middle class housewife who lives in Long Island and goes into Manhattan to have a sexual adventure. I think everyone can identify with that. Fewer of us can identify with being claustrophobic actors who can't be a good vampire because you freak out when you get in your coffin and then go into this whole adventure in the porn industry. <laughs> yeah, and walk into a, a Frankie Goes to Hollywood video, <laughs> which is actually the point in the film where I think it just sort of suddenly, you're just like, oh, okay. So, yeah, exactly. It's just like, you, you, it's like, what was that scene? I mean, it's cool in and of itself. It's very cool, but it's, you know, the positive way of looking at it is that is De Palma being experimental because it's this weird representation of something going on inside Craig Wasson's head. I don't think you can't even really accept it as like the actual way porno movie is made. It's just going off into its own stylized realm. It lost me, but I find it interesting as a as a curio. I think I watched it, you know, sometime in the, within the last year, and it was just so much funnier than I remembered it. A lot of that movie so, is just just funny. Just so yeah. Out, yeah. But out. even just like when he does the romantic three hundred and sixty degree pans around the you know the kissing couple, it seems patently ridiculous. 
I don't know to what degree he really intended that. May I don't know. That is the question, because some say that clearly it had to be self-conscious and what he was doing, and then others say that De Palma says, oh, no, <laughs> I'm in every frame. I think he did. <laughs> so, which is maybe scarier. Is the elevator murder scene in Dress to Kill terrifying in a different way than the shower scene is in Psycho? Yes. Yes. The elevator scene in Dress to Kill is crucially different than the shower scene in Psycho. First of all, they're intended to have different kinds of impact. When Mrs. Bates attacks Janet Lee in the shower, it comes at you in this, you know, kind of staccato frenzy. But in Dress to Kill, it's much more Argento in a way. It's much more dreamlike. I mean, when, uh, well, first of all, he breaks it down into different sections because he's cross-cutting between the event and Nancy Allen waiting for the elevator on another floor. And that in itself creates a different kind of energy, the cross-cutting. But when you know, we have such a long, drawn-out uh, sequence of suspense as Angie Dickinson is riding the elevator, she you know, has just found out the guy she hooked up with has VD. Then she realizes she's left her wedding ring there. This, just the series of calamities happening that drive her to go back to the seventh floor where De Palma has established that someone is lurking. So he draws that suspense out much more agonizingly than Hitchcock did in the shower scene, which is really just that one shot when she's in the shower and we see through the curtain that the figure is coming. This is much more drawn out and much, I I think much more kind of a virtuoso demonstration of suspense as we're going up to the seventh floor. And then finally the, the door opens and the killer wields the razor and then slashes, you know, she slashes her outstretched hand. And that, like, that kind of is staccato-like in a Hitchcockian way. But then the killer, you know, forces her further into the elevator. And, and De Palma uses that moment to establish that great convex mirror that's up in the upper corner of the elevator. Then we cross-cut back to Nancy Allen. Then we come back, oh, back. And then finally, when these characters who up until this point in the movie have been separate and haven't met yet, the door opens and they meet. Everything goes into this slowed down dream time as the Nancy Allen character takes in what she has seen. She's seeing this horribly slaughtered, dying, but not yet dead woman, you know, imploring her for help. And then he reminds us that the killer is lurking in the corner of the elevator, which Nancy Allen can't see. It's just way more complicated. There's a lot more going on in that scene than the shower scene. He's just doing so many different kinds of suspense filmmaking and shock filmmaking. But my favorite part is that slowed down stuff. You know, when... Nancy Allen, you know, reaches out to stop the elevator door from closing. We're going, oh, no, is the killer going to slash her? The light bounces off the razor. 
off the mirror, into Nancy Allen's eyes, all of this happening agonizingly, but gorgeously slowly. And then she looks up into the mirror and their eyes meet. And then the killer just drops the razor. Nancy Allen scoops it up and the door closes. And then we go back into 24 frames per second. I just, I, again, I just find that to be such a virtuoso demonstration of horror filmmaking. Not that the, the shower sequence was not, but for anyone, and we were discussing this earlier, for people who have this kind of facile way of criticizing De Palma for stealing Hitchcock's stuff. You know, they're just like, oh, the, the elevator murder is just a repeat of the shower. It's not. It's actually a very interesting elaboration of it, uh, bringing in other influences like Italian giallo films. Is there something uniquely terrifying about being murdered by your therapist? <laughs> yeah, I think that that's probably true. And having worked on the TV show Hannibal, I think I like like I was actually able to like utilize some of that. You know, we well, well that fantasy. It's like the fantasy of like, oh, my therapist would kill on my behalf to make my my life better or something. But um, yeah, of course, at that point in Dress to Kill, we don't know that that is her therapist. But it, when we, you know, we get the full picture, yeah, because you know your therapist is the person that you're entrusting your most intimate secrets to, which Angie Dickinson does early in the movie. She's telling her about her sexual problems with her husband. She admits that she's attracted to him. She comes on to him. He you know, turns her down very gently. We see her disappointment and, uh, you know, a little bit of that feeling that, you you know, you have in those situations where it's like, oh, what's wrong with me? You know, and it really builds a lot of sympathy for that character. So then, yeah, it's, it's the ultimate violation to be murdered because you allowed yourself to be so vulnerable. One more question about De Palma and his masterful style. As a piece of filmmaking craft, how do you rate the sequence where Angie Dickinson's character is seduced at the museum? How do I rate it? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I think that the museum sequence in Dress to Kill is, you know, one of the, the great sequences of all cinema, I think, because I think that it's, how long does that sequence last? If you, if you count, if you include that and, and then when she emerges from the museum and gets into the cab with the guy, goes home with him, it's got to be like 15, 20 minutes of virtually wordless visual storytelling that I, I think in and of itself, you know, that's a huge accomplishment. He always keeps us in her head. Everything is sexualized. You know, the paintings that she's looking at, then the guy sits next to her, and you get this, you know, seduction between these two characters happening in this, you know, almost incongruously elegant environment of this museum, and the the steady cam that follows her around as she's, you know, playing cat and mouse with each other, trying to pick each other up. She's trying to decipher is he into me or not? Because he sends mixed signals. All of this conveyed visually, I think it's it's really stunning. And I think that Donaggio's score is a huge part of that because it's so 
in an, in that old Hollywood way, it's so lyrical and romantic. And I think he really sets us up for identifying with Angie Dickinson's goal, which is to, to be loved. I mean, she feels unloved in her life. She feels unloved uh, sexually by her husband. And we want her to feel better about herself. And so we're cheering for it and we love it. And then it all just goes so badly. But I think that the elevator sequence when she gets killed, part of the power comes from the fact that we have just witnessed 20 minutes of seduction, uh, indecision, is this the right thing to do? At various times we see, you know, she feels guilty, she's hesitant, she's turned on. All of that, it's, it's you know, I think most of us have been in that scene, you know, if we're, if we're lucky, you know, we've, we've played that scene uh, many times in our lives. And so we can, we really identify with it. I, yeah, I think, I think it's one of the best scenes in, in movies. So you have the initial shock where she finds out her hookup has VD, which is just the first of many things that go wrong. And it's really, in a way, that that moment plays almost comedically because it's just like, this is so awful. But it's also, like, if you look at it through a more modern lens, it's like, that's awful, you know? And I, I think, I actually, even at the time, I mean, a lot of feminist groups w- protested the film and they were outraged by it. And I think it was the, a combination of all these things that the seemingly, that, that this woman is being punished for straying from her marriage. And, you know, and I can certainly see that argument. And I think that that would be a much more incendiary thing to do in 2019 than it was in 1980. But it's provocative. And I think that's part of the reason that that movie is so powerful because it's pushing all these buttons, you know, sexual buttons, cultural buttons. Oh, that's wrong. That's awful. Shouldn't do that. Oh, my God. But somehow in that movie, it didn't feel merely provocative in the way that we were talking about it felt in Body Double. Because I think you identify with and care so much more about Angie Dickinson than you do about Craig Watson. <laughs> you know? Yeah, in all of his movies, yeah. <laughs> You know, the criticism at the time was he hates women, and this movie was filled with violence towards women. And one response is, well, a lot of real-life violence is towards women, and that's the reality of the culture we're in. And Angie Dickinson is hardly made out to be a horrible person. No, not at all. And that's why I think I don't agree with those criticisms of the movie, is because De Palma is very careful to make you love that character. And she's a full person. She really is. And I think that her death lands as a very sad thing. You don't, I, I would argue, for me, it was more sad than Janet Lee's death in Psycho because I just think somehow Angie Dickinson's specific plight, she just seemed more vulnerable somehow. Yeah, Janet Lee seems, she's a little colder and a little tougher. Yeah. Angie Dickinson sort of oozed this warmth through her glamour. she ha- Exactly, she had that warmth, but she also just... She had this vulnerability because she was, because of her age, you know, I guess she's like 45 or something, beautiful woman, but like, am I past my prime? Does my husband doesn't seem to love me? It's all of that stuff, which wasn't really present 
in the story about um, Janet Lee and Psycho, Marion Crane. I think that De Palma does a really great job of creating a character that deserves our sympathy. And when she dies, it's it's genuinely moving. And it's not it's not something like out of a slasher movie where you're just like going, yeah, this is awesome. Look at this, you know, all this gore. No, I mean, it's more like you really don't want it to happen just as you don't want Carrie's fate to befall her every time you watch the movie. Do you ever get scared or frightened by any modern horror films? Or at this point, have you seen so much material? Is it just sort of like, oh, that's an interesting shot? Well, it's definitely like an occupational hazard, if that's the right term for this, of like when you do it as, you know, for your business and your art or whatever. Yeah, I'm very hip to most of the tricks. So there are a lot of times that I'm watching horror movies that I can anticipate what's coming. But then I'm try- I'm just trying to think of like what horror movies recently have have really I don't know like, you know, get out. It's so specifically a cultural thing. I can't think of, I can't articulate it better than that. It, it's like like that movie r- really scared me because even though I'm not African American, maybe as a gay man, I can understand being discriminated against, and so that was so much of the the bedrock subtext that was generating the fear and anxiety in that movie. That was a movie that really got to me. But it was it's less the filmmaking mechanics of suspense and more the context. I think that when when a filmmaker has some original voice in that way, it's it, it can affect me and scare me in, in a more profound way, I guess. And you stop noticing the uh, the art, art artifice of it so much and just right. hook up directly to the material. Exactly. That was the indomitable Don Mancini. Join us next time when our guest will be Barbara Machetti. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bichara. For oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Ogreboy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayenga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Zanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and Cut. Mm-hmm.